Our scripture text this morning is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You know, maybe you know, uh, some of you know this, that in the late 80s and early 90s, Carol and I served overseas working with refugees who were coming out of communistic countries at the time, Albania, Bulgaria, at the time Czechoslovakia, Russia, and so forth. And uh, they were coming out, and if you were to ask them to define their life, they would have said it was one of oppression, bondage, enslavement. It was a very, very difficult life that they had lived. And when they would come over to Austria, they experienced freedom for the first time, a great freedom, freedom to move about, freedom to do what they wanted to do, freedom even to, to get work, or freedom to, uh, to eat certain things. One friend from uh, Romania uh, hadn't seen an orange for six years. Uh, from his time in Romania because they were shipping it all out to fund the government. Uh, but they were finally free and they were excited. They couldn't believe. They, they finally had these freedoms again from living in all this bondage. Now, if, if we were to suggest to them, well, why don't you go back to your home country? Uh, it, it would seem crazy to them. Why go back to slavery? Why go back to oppression when you finally have this freedom? I mean, they would have looked at us as if we were losing our minds. Uh, who in the world... Once you have suffered under slavery and the burden of it, and then to taste freedom and to enjoy it, to go back to it, would just seem to be the most nonsensical thing in the world. This is what Paul's kind of getting at right here with these Galatians. If you've been here, you've heard over the past few chapters, Paul, like with the precision of a surgeon, has been theologically arguing uh, that those who have come to faith in Christ are made sons. Uh, they're given the Spirit. They have access to the Father. They have freedom from the condemnation of the law. Now, why would anyone want to go back to living under this enslavement of law when you finally tasted forgiveness and reconciliation and freedom? And so what Paul's doing here is he's moving from a theological argument to a much more pastoral or personal. He loves these people. He's frustrated with them, as you can kind of tell, but he loves these people. 
and he wants to kind of encourage them in the way of newness of life and not a return to the law, which is what they were considering doing. So we don't know all the details of what was in Paul's life at the time. You know, so many of the things that he speaks about, you're like, well, why did he say that? And, and what was happening that prompted it? We, we don't know. We don't know the personal details. But, but we see the heart of a good pastor here. We see the heart of, of one who, who loves a people and who is laboring for their good. It really gives us a blueprint for pastors. It gives us a blueprint for ministry. I mean, Martin Luther was the one that reminded the church that you are the priesthood of all believers. So it's not just the leadership team of this church. We all are called to be ministers of the gospel to one another. You may not do it as a vocation. You may not do it with the amount of hours that others do it. But, but with those people with whom you're close, we're called, the Christian is called to be a minister. And so Paul here is kind of revealing his heart to us. So I just want to draw out five simple things about what it is in his heart that makes him so unique. And, and I want you to compare yourself to it, not in a condemning kind of way, but, but, it, but as a plumb line, right, to see where am I in relationship to what looks like uh, the heart of good ministry. Uh, so the first thing you see, and I'll, I'll go through them slowly, but the first thing you see is that uh, a heart for ministry seeks the strays. It seeks those who wander away, who are turning back. Look with me at 8 to 11, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Now, what Paul's doing is he's, he is perplexed, as he says, and he's He's saying to them, formerly, you know, before you, you were pagan worshipers. I mean, before you were converted, before you became Christians, you went to the pagan temples. You committed immorality. You lived with license. You were enslaved to those gods. In Galatia, they would be coming and bringing sacrifices to the gods over and over. They, they, they were nervous. The gods needed to bring rain. They needed to bring life. They needed to bring children to homes. And so you'd sacrifice, and you hope you did enough. You never really knew, but you kept making sacrifices so that those gods might be kind to you. They were enslaved to it. He said, that's what you were. He said, but not now. I mean, now you know God. You know They weren't really gods anyways. You worship them as gods. But, but now you know God. You, you know his character, his kindness, his mercy. You know his son. You know his purposes. You know his sovereign ways in this world. And not just that. But even more so, you're known by God. And that's where the emphasis, Paul shifts the emphasis. It's one thing to know about God. You didn't know him before, but now you do. That's great. But it's even better to be known by God. God knows you for the Christian. Those words ought to ring sweet sounds in your ears. You're known by God. You're known by him. He knows you. He's adopted you. He loves you. He's reconciled himself to you. The, the implication is God's done this. If we're known by God, he's the one that initiated us to be reconciled. It's his electing grace. It's his mercy to move towards us. He had to know us first before we could ever know God. And that's what Paul's saying. 
if you know God, if you have access to God, if you have the Spirit, if you have freedom from the law, why would you go back? Now, Paul's not worried they're going back to paganism. You know that. That's where they were originally. What he's worried about is they're going back to a different type of enslavement, legalism. Paul's comparing legalism and paganism. Paganism, you know, where you've got to keep offering to God the sacrifices needed to be reconciled? That's what paganism is. But legalism is similar. You've got to do, you've got to keep the law. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to go to church. These things will somehow make God favorable to you. So it's the same type of enslavement. He's drawing a comparison. This is incredible what he's doing. You can be religious and be exactly similar to the pagan enjoying temple prostitution in the temple. One author said it this way. Paul is saying that earning one's salvation through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism with all its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person is as enslaved as the irreligious person. This is why he's been pounding the drum. To what degree are we resting on ourselves as kind of primary for what makes us acceptable to God? It's intuitive to us. We're, we live in a meritocracy. We just think that way. But what he's making a comparison is not just paganism and legalism, but you know, paganism, he says, Formerly, you worshipped gods that weren't really gods. Now, they were something. It wasn't nothing that they were worshipping. It was They were gods, but they weren't really the god. They were demons, is what Paul's saying. And now he's saying legalism is, in a way, like worshipping demons. Satan takes the law, and he uses it to tyrannize us. The law was supposed to reveal sin, so when you read the law, you read it, you think, I I can't keep up with this. It reveals our sin so that we might return to a Savior. That's what we've been talking about. But what Satan does is he uses it to condemn us. The law was supposed to lead us to liberty by seeing that we could not meet it. And yet Satan uses it like a whip to drive us to enslavement. So what Paul's saying to these Galatians is simply, you're wandering, you're turning back. Don't turn back. Have I labored in vain over you? That's what he's beginning to ask. So the heart of ministry, how we are to live with one another, is we're to be concerned about those with those whom, who they begin to stray, they begin to turn back, they begin to walk away. Are you indifferent to those that you see them for a while, but then you don't see someone anymore? Are you indifferent to people who kind of just slowly migrate away from the flock, away from the church? Or do you think the paid professionals will go after them? Will let them do that? Or perhaps you're intentional about it. You're looking around and you're saying, who hasn't been here? Who's not plugged in? Who's, who's not living the life and community in which we're covenanted to do? You know, as an elder board, I've told you this, Uh, Many times, it just bears repeating that each elder meeting, we take a letter of the alphabet, and we look at the families in that letter, and we see how they're doing. Are they plugged in? Are they going to church? Those are some of the observable things that we get to see. Are Are they in a care group? Are they in a Bible study? What we're trying to do is discern who's on the periphery 
of church life because people that tend to be on the periphery, they don't stay there forever. They tend to get farther and the, and the circles get wider and wider. And so we, we assess and we try to see they're at risk in our mind. You're at risk. And, and we want to pursue. So even if you are one of those, and maybe you just come to church on Sunday, or, or maybe periodically, uh, we generally, who will call them? We pray. Ask God to draw them back into the fold. We don't do well in Christian faith alone. We have to be in a community. And so we pursue them. You know, God chastises the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel 34 for not doing what I'm saying we're to do. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. So the heart of good ministry is concerned with those who are beginning to move away from faith. Though it may be the process of deconverting, it may be a fence-given way that they begin to pull away, and we want to go after them. That, that is our task. So Carol and I had a friend a long, long, long time ago, before we were in full-time ministry, and um, he began to move away began to do things and live life in a way that he didn't before, and uh, not worshiping God, not seeking God. And, and so we went and approached him, and we spoke to him, took him out to dinner, and talked to him about the faith, and we continued to pursue him. Uh, it, did not, it did not meet itself out in his immediate return. We continued to press him. He was straying. We loved him, and so we went after him. That's the heart of ministry. That's what we're called to do to seek the strays. And that's what Paul's doing here. How are you turning back? Why are you going back into... It's the engagement. Don't you remember where you came from? You're known by God right now. So it's the heart of love that drives that. If you're one of those straying, it's out of love. It's not out of a pursuit to maintain numbers or, or just keep you close. It's out of love. The second thing you see in the apostle's heart, is this willingness to serve. And even at a sacrificial way, look with me at 12 to 14. He says, brothers, I entreat you. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but you receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So, so what's he saying here? He's saying, become as I am. What does that mean? Paul's not being arrogant here. He's not saying, hey, my life is sinless, so follow me. Paul, throughout the scripture, says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, he's simply saying, become as I am. He's saying, walk in the freedom of God that he has given to you. Don't go back to slavery. That's what he's saying. And, and you notice, he says, because I have... Become as you are. Uh, Paul speaks about the cost of becoming. He, here is a Jewish man. Think of the irony here. So Paul, as a Jewish man, comes among Gentiles and lives like Gentiles so as to preach the gospel to them. They come to faith. And then these Gentiles are now wanting to become Jewish to come back under a law. Uh, the irony is it's, it's right there. What are you doing? Paul had sacrificed himself. Paul, a Jewish man, 
adopts Gentile ways so as to speak to the gospel in their language and their way, and they come to faith in Christ. Paul goes into their homes. He eats their foods. He, he adopts their styles so as to win them to Christ. He's sacrificing his own identity in a way so that he can be more understood by them. But not just that. You see the sacrifice. He has this bodily ailment. Scholars love to do just flips on this one. We don't know what it is. Was it a bad eye? Maybe he had bad eyesight. That's kind of inferred in chapter 6 when he says, see with what large letters I write as if he has trouble seeing. Could be malaria. We don't know what it is. The point of it is he went there in weakness. He went there sick. He was, he was playing hurt. I mean, he didn't step out of the game. So I've got a bad day, got a bad wheel, I I can't run anymore. He's playing hurt. He goes there in weakness. And you see that God used his weakness and his sacrificial service in redemptive ways because he says, you receive me as an angel of God. You receive me as Christ Jesus. My condition wasn't a trial to you. You didn't scorn me. You didn't despise me. You took me in. I mean, Paul speaks to this principle of of weakness being that strength. You know, that in kind of a counterintuitive way, God's always doing things in kind of a contradictory way. He says in Corinthians, of course, Galatians is probably one of his first letters. Second Corinthians came much later, but he says these words. But he said to me, this is Jesus speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more, this is Paul now speaking, because Christ said, my power is, is made perfect in your weakness. So that should change our view of what it means to be weak in the things of God. It ought to encourage us. That's the way Paul took it. He says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So So the heart of ministry says we embrace sacrifice. We embrace weakness. We get into things that we often don't know how to get out of. It's often situations I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't have an answer. I haven't been there. I haven't experienced that. He's calling the heart of ministry is one that's willing to suffer for the sake of others. Willing to almost incarnate themselves into the world of the person and all the awkwardness it may bring. We do these things for the sake of the gospel and for the good of those that we listen to. This is a heartbeat of ministry. We have to be willing. You know, when Carol and I moved to Michigan, we thought that the cultural shift from the East Coast to Austria was significant. We underestimated the cultural shift to go to the Midwest. In a farming community, we weren't farmers. We worked among those, you know, the town was a small, small town. We were, Serena Park was between Baltimore and D.C. We are right in the hub of all kinds of activities. They had a different language, they had a different style, they had a different history. They had a history that they, that they bonded to from the Midwest that we didn't have any clue on. And we were constantly being drawn back to this idea that Paul would become all things to all people in the desire to win some to Christ. So that's just the nature of ministry. There's a cost there. You know, Hudson Taylor, many of you have read his biography or books about him. He was a Chinese missionary, British, sent to China. 
He did a fantastic work. He used to receive the rebuke of other British missionaries because he adopted their clothing, he spoke in their language, he adopted some of their customs and habits, and he found great success identifying with them so as to bring the gospel to them. The heartbeat of ministry is that we want to sacrificially serve, even if it means climbing into the awkward world of a person that you're with, even if you feel weak doing it. Third, you see the heartbeat of ministry, a heart of ministry is seeking the joy of people, seeking their happiness. Look in 15 with me. He says, what then has become of your blessedness? That word blessedness could be happiness or joy. He says, for I testify to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, what's he saying here? Well, Paul's seeing he came to them with the gospel. Uh, they came to faith. They were overjoyed. You see that in chapter 3. They were given the Spirit, and he's saying, what happened to your joy? Legalism has come in, and it's stolen the joy from you. He reminds them how happy they were in him. He said, you would have gouged out your eyes from me. That's obviously a hyperbole. He is just exp he's expressing to the degree that they would have sacrificed themselves for him. He says, what's happened to your happiness? Don't you see legalism has come in? You've strayed too far. Paul sought their joy. He wanted them to be happy in God. You see this in Philippians. When he talks about it, be rather, he'd rather go and be with the Lord. But he says, I'm convinced that I'll remain. And he says, here's the reason why. For the progress and joy of your faith. Paul was concerned about that the Christians in Philippi would progress in faith, understanding the things of God. But he wanted them to increase in joy, to be happy in God. I mean, if he's our father, as Keith prayed, we have access to him. He knows what we're like. There's no way we can come to him without Christ, but he's provided a way for us. He's given us the spirit to convict us of sin and cause us to know that we're children of God, that death itself doesn't even hold a threat against us. If we have all this, we should be joyful. We should be happy, happy in God. So the heart of ministry is not seeking for people just to grow in their knowledge of God, we do that. But also that you'd grow in your joy in God. That's what we're always praying about, affections. Ray was praying for the affections of your hearts in the prayer service before the time today of gathering. We want you to love God, know God, enjoy God, and to be happy in God. You know, the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That love is coming out of a, out of a heart of joy. You know, we don't make behavioralists. Uh, I, we, as a church, believe that behavior flows from belief. That what you really believe, what you really love is what you move towards. And if you really have a joy in God, and if we really love him, then the behavior that's going to come out of that is going to be equivalent is going to be right not perfect not always one-to-one -one, but it's going to be moving in that direction so a heart for ministry is i don't want you just to have heads filled with knowledge but hearts aflame for god i want to bring light to your minds understanding but we want to bring heat to your heart that you love him so so a heartbeat of ministry is concerned with are we happy in god that's why i ask every year do you love him more I, I, just, I don't ask you every week. You'd be trying to measure the, the growth of a child week by week. You wouldn't see it, but year by year you begin to see it. So that's a heartbeat of ministry. So if you're taking notes, remember now the, a heart of ministry is one that 
um, that seeks the strays, a heartbeat of ministry, is willing to embrace sacrificial service for them and, and seek their joy. Two more. Uh, one is that a heart of ministry um, speaks the truth to people. We tell people the truth for their good. So look with me at 16 and 17. He says, how then have I become your enemy? By telling you the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that they may, that you may make much of them. Now what Paul's doing is, he's saying, hey, you just went from gouging out your eyes, now I'm your enemy. So, so Paul's telling them the truth, and he's losing a friendship in the process. They're turning against the apostle. They're turning against the one who planted the church. They're turning against the one who brought the gospel to him. They're saying, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? You know, these false teachers, we don't know these Judaizers, these teachers from Jerusalem. Uh, Paul is kind of, you know, unveiling, if you will, their motivation. They're, they're making much of you, so you'll make much of them. They're just coming to get you, you know, back under the law so they can feel better about themselves. They're seeking your applause. They're seeking your adulation. We kind of pick this up from chapter 6 and verse 13 where Paul says, for even those who are circumcised, that is these Jewish teachers coming in, wanting to circumcise so as to follow the law of Moses, he says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. That's the irony of trying to keep the law. You don't keep the law. He says, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, if they can get you to do what they want you to do, it makes them feel strong. It reflects back on them. It's adulation to them. And Paul's just coming and saying, am I your enemy because I told you the truth? Now Paul's been telling them the truth. He's called them fools. He said, who's bewitched you? He said, I'm afraid that I've labored in vain. He says in verse 20 that I'm perplexed about you. Paul is telling them the truth for their good. So a heart for ministry has to be one in which we're willing to tell each other the truth about where we are in life. Now, obviously, this has to be done with grace and timing has to be considered and the, the posture of the person that you're speaking with. But how many conversations have you avoided saying something truthful that probably needed to be said, but you didn't say it because you were afraid that they would either get angry at you, they would freeze you out for a few days, make you pay for doing that, how many of you have done that? How many of you in marriage have done that? I find often, even between husbands and wives, uh, one of the parties, they'll be afraid to say something because if it lands wrong, I will pay dearly for a few days. And you just think, eh, I'm going to take a pass. That a friend is worth their weight in gold who will be willing to give offense for the good of the other. I'm not talking about telling somebody the truth because you want them to change because the way they do life bugs you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about speaking the truth to someone who is living in a way that will be destructive to their own life, and not that it bothers you. In other words, you, know, you want to speak in a way that's helping them for their spiritual good. And not for how it reflects back to you. Some, of, some pastors don't want to have hard messages from the pulpit. Why? Because it makes space out there. You know, if they, if they had a seating problem, they won't have a seating problem later. Because people don't want to hear it. And they say, if he's going to talk that way, we're gone. 
or we've got a budget year coming up, or we've got a building campaign, and we just got to go more general for a while. That's not loving people. It, it, it's not loving to teach people error. It's also not loving to fail to speak truth to people. John Brown was a Scottish uh, minister in the 18th century, and he said, he says, this must be our preoccupation to speak the truth. The spiritual progress of the other and care little for our reputation. Have to care little for that. I mean, that is the heart of ministry. We're put into positions to have to say things to one another. To one another. It's not just from me to you or you to me. It's to one another. So that at the end of life, we're thankful for all those things said that while we didn't like hearing them, we needed them. I've shared before, Carol's, um, her standard entree when I'm about to get hit with a truth bomb would be, um, is this a good time to talk? Thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. But she tries to do it in a gentle way so that, that she, I, I ready myself, because nobody likes to hear. Truth by nature is confrontational. It's by nature confrontational. But, but the heart of ministry, we have to be willing to tell the truth. Now, if you're here right now listening to me, which I trust most of you are, uh, if you get told the truth, could you try to receive it? Could you try to just assume they love you, they want the better for you, and, and they're trying to deliver it in the best way possible? They may do it faultingly, but, but they're trying to do it because they are more interested in your spiritual progress than in the reputation that they have with you once they tell you. So this is the heart of ministry. We have to speak the truth to one another. We want to do it gently. We want to do it lovingly. We don't want to just constantly be the truth bringer in their life. We want to encourage them as well when we see the grace of God. Pray for them. But the heart of ministry, Paul says, have I become your enemy? Will I be your enemy if I tell you the truth? And then the last aspect of ministry, the last heart of ministry that we see in, in these really personal letters, these personal words of Paul, is that you know the heart of ministry is really founded on a perseverance for the good of the other person. That I'm going to persevere with you in this life so that you finish well. You see this in 19. In 19, he says, My little children for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Now listen to what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, my little children. Now what's he doing here? Well, obviously it's a term of affection. Uh, but it's also evidencing that the, he is like a mother to them. I mean, he did birth the church in the sense that he planted it. He was the first one that brought the gospel in, and they believed. And so he's saying, he's saying, my little children, I'm the one that brought you into this new kingdom of God. He says, I am again in the pains of childbirth. Y you see what's happening? Paul is suffering again to see Christ formed in them. Paul's goal is to persevere with them so that Christ be formed in them. But you notice his language. He says, my little children, I've already given birth to you. I'm again in the pains of childbirth. It's as if he's going through the pains of childbirth. They need to be born again, again. They need to be rebirthed, if you will, because they're starting to fall back. People are starting to stray away from the faith. Troubling times are coming and people are backing away. 
He said, I'm again in the pains of childbirth. Now, I don't know what the pains of childbirth are. I've only watched them from a distance. I did make the mistake when Carol came out after having given birth to Katie. My dad was right there, and he says, how's everybody doing? Fatal mistake, a pronounal mistake. I said, we're doing fine, Dad. He goes, I wasn't asking about you. You didn't suffer anything, Tom. And um, the point of it is, I don't know, but I, I watched it, and Paul's trying to pick up something in concert with him, him giving birth to the church. I'm again in the pains of childbirth. It, it, it is... It is difficult. Paul speaks about this over and over in his ministry as to the difficulties that he had. He says in Colossians, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He struggles greatly. He said, I toiled with great energy. Or in Corinthian, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, with greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That is a laundry list of suffering for the sake. It's persevering. I'm again in the pains of childbirth, but listen to what he says at the end. He says, and apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why? He wants Christ formed in them. He doesn't just want Christ dwelling in them. He wants Christ formed in them. He wants them to become like Christ. That's the heartbeat of ministry, to persevere with people so that they don't become like me or someone else, but they become like Christ. And John Calvin said it this way, he says, if ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ, not form themselves in their hearts. That's what we want here. The heart of ministry is to form, to see Christ formed in you, and you to see Christ formed in me. I asked Carol, walking through the sermon this week, in the middle of the week, I said, Carol, if you had to pick a verse, uh, what would be the verse that has tried to define our service in ministry? And she picked uh, 1 Corinthians. She says, be steadfast and movable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, for you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I said, that's a good one. I said, but what's another one that you've heard us say? She goes, my little children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth. This is the heart of ministry that we want you and you want one another to be formed into Christ. Not to be formed into some caricature or some immature representation of them, but that Christ will be formed in you. This is the heartbeat of ministry. This is what we labor for. Uh, th this is the, the goal of ministry, that we become like Christ, that we're changed from glory to glory, this incremental movement. It's a slow work. I I'm in it for the long haul. That's why the short-term pastor, it's two years here, four years there, six years there, three years there. It, it doesn't work well. 
a long time of just walking together side by side for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. So this is kind of the blueprint of ministry. You know, that we would be willing, and and not just from leadership. By God's grace, I think we have a stellar leadership. Uh, But but among all of us together, that we would be seeking the strays, that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves to enter into the world of people to serve them for the sake of the gospel. That we would seek their joy, not just behavioral change, not just agreeing with us theologically. No, 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 That, that, that we would seek their joy. That we would speak the truth when we have to and that we would be willing to receive it. But, but at the end of the day, that we would feel pains. And there are pains with seeing people formed into Christ. It takes time. It adjusts schedules. We get into conflicts. There is all kinds of issues that we have to step into, that you have to step into. There are disagreements that we have with one another. But we go through, though, the pain of those things because we believe that by the Spirit of God, he's forming us into Christ. This is the heartbeat. This is a blueprint. This is the the kind of minister you want. This is the kind of leadership you want. This is the kind of church that we want to be. It's a personal word from a faithful apostle. Let's ask God for grace right now, just in these few moments that follow. I just ask God for wisdom in this, strength to walk in it. Maybe it's going to challenge some of you. You've stayed away from ministry because you feel weak, but now you've been of course, instructed, then a weakness is kind of a a prerequisite to get into ministry. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.